0: What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Joey, nutrition science, PhD, and founder of Fit for Life Academy. Today, um, we're going to be talking about the carnivore diets. Uh, in particular, we're going to be discussing some of the major claims that Dr. Sean Baker made on the most recent podcast episode on Joe Rogan, because um, there's some, some pretty crazy claims made around the carnivore diets, and I want to discuss them in detail and provide nuance in terms of both, perhaps some some pros and cons, because I feel like often, you know, especially with the carnivore diet that's so polarizing, people are actually, you know, are either 100% saying that it's the best thing that you can do or the complete opposite saying that it's going to kill you by tomorrow. (laughs) And both of those are pretty polar extremes. So I think this episode will be a nice way to provide some nuance to the conversation of the carnivore diets. And to talk about this, I have my good friend Adrian back on the show for the third time. What's up, man? What's up, man? I'm glad to be here. Awesome, dude. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, Adrian and I were talking a little bit earlier today. It's funny because I invited him on because I was trying to record this episode yesterday by myself and I was not feeling it. And I've realized I have way more fun with the podcast when I'm having a conversation with somebody, especially somebody who's as knowledgeable as Adrian. So let's start by uh, just mentioning some of the main claims that Sean Baker made on the episode. And then we can start to just go one by one and and discuss what sort of relevance or uh, validity it has. Okay. So there are four main claims he made on this episode that I want to go over. The first claim is that the carnivore diet can cure chronic diseases like diabetes and obesity and autoimmune conditions. So some pretty big claims there. We'll discuss those specifically. The second claim is that ultra processed food consumption is the enemy and the solution is to essentially follow a carnivore diet, right? That one always, always, always makes me laugh because it's like, should we limit ultra processed food for certain reasons? Yeah, we should, but that doesn't mean just eat meat. So that one's kind of fun. Um, third one being uh, Sean really, really questions the scientific rigor on LDL cholesterol Um, and says that most of the data is observational in nature. We'll explain what that means and we'll discuss whether that's true or not. And then the last claim I want to discuss, Adrian, is this idea that fiber is not an essential nutrient. Specifically, the, the justification that Sean gives for the data showing improvements in health with increased fiber consumption is... He essentially says that when we look at these studies that increase fiber intake, what it's doing is displacing other stuff that is junk food. And fiber is just a proxy essentially for an overall healthier diet because he agrees that consuming fruits and veggies is better than just eating older processed foods. And that's why people are seeing an improvement in health with fiber, not necessarily because fiber itself is helpful. Um, so those are the four main things that we'll be talking about. Okay. So some pretty big topics. I know we could probably talk about any of those in. Uh, really good detail. So I'm excited to start the episode. One of the things that you and I were discussing is not being really biased here, right? So maybe it's a good idea to start by talking about some of the potential pros of the carnivore diet. You want to start there?
1: Yeah, yeah, I can definitely start there. And I have some specific experience in this, and you and I were talking about this uh, previously. So in in my like my initial reaction when I see this is or when I first saw like carnivore diet, you know, I'm thinking this is definitely not good. You know, there's no reason to be doing that. But over the years, I I work with digestive with clients with digestive issues, and I have seen that many of them, for various reasons that are pretty easy to explain, uh, just don't tolerate various fruits and vegetables very well. So there's like for example someone with uh, Crohn's disease, for example, they they don't do well with insoluble fibers, and so these insoluble fibers are found in vegetables. So oftentimes, they tend to feel better individuals with, with Crohn's disease when they avoid some of these insoluble fibers. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that in terms of like how they respond, and everyone's different. Every individual can respond differently. Um, but one of the you know pros of this dietary approach is by eliminating all of these plant foods and only eating, you know, what they're typically doing is only eating red meat or only eating just meat or just animal foods, you're taking away all of these plant fibers and you're also taking away what are called FODMAPs, which are fermentable carbohydrates. And if you have digestive issues, um, there's a good chance you're probably having a negative response to FODMAPs. There's a chance that you're probably having a negative response to insoluble fibers. There's a chance that you're probably having a negative response to, uh, to gluten or, you know, some other constituents of foods that can be having a negative impact on your health from a digestive standpoint like causing symptoms and so when people go on this diet they feel better and they immediately as you mentioned a second ago think oh wow this is I was being lied to because that's what they've been told they're like oh I was being lied to when I switch my diet I feel so much better and then they become evangelists for the diet because, because of the way that it's promoted so because of like what you said where Sean Baker says Oh, this is this is a diet that heals. You know, it's gonna heal autoimmune disease. If you do it and you start to feel better, you're gonna think that this guy knew what he was talking about, and that you know the information that he shared with you that you know the government's lying to you and all this other stuff that they use to try to convince people to go carnivore is true um, because of your personal experience. And the reality is that a lot of people, especially from a digestive standpoint, are gonna feel better at first, and then. Once they have been on the diet for a long period of time and nutrient deficiencies have the opportunity to start to develop, uh, then they start to oftentimes experience side effects from,
0: from the diet. Did, do we know, do you know off the top of your head kind of what percentage of the population is sensitive to FODMAP-containing foods?
1: Um, so about 16% of the population has IBS and uh, it's very common, 76% of people with IBS, I think it's 76 maybe a couple percentage points off, respond positively to a low FODMAP diet. So we're looking at like 13% of the population or something like that that we know is probably responding really well to a lower FODMAP diet. So you're looking at like one in six, one in seven people that if you tell them to eliminate all vegetables and all plant foods, they're going to feel better from a digestive standpoint. And that's yeah. that's immediate uh, positive feedback that this person, what they were saying was true. Um when the reality is they that person like people who were telling people to go carnivore, you don't need to go full carnivore. You could actually just avoid some of those foods yeah. that are triggering for you and still feel better and not be following such a uh extreme restrictive diet that eliminates so many different foods. But um it's a positive feedback loop because they always and I, I see Paul Saladino do this and there's probably others that do it as well, who who say you know, if you don't believe me, try it. And they do that on purpose because they know that there's a percentage of the population who's going to feel better at the beginning. And and so they're going to be bought in. If you've been struggling with digestive issues and you're trying to eat a healthy diet, quote unquote, and you're eating lots of fruits and vegetables and you're not feeling well, and someone tells you the carnivore is the answer and you do that, and you feel a lot better, you're going to be really bought in. And that's how, that's how These like extreme camps of people who think carnivore heals everything kind of develop is because they feel that improvement in themselves and then they they go on and become evangelists for
0: the diet, thinking that everyone needs to do it. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because oftentimes when I talk about these things, like kind of the comments or feedback that I get from people is like, Well, what do you think about all the people that are seeing benefits? Do you think they're lying? Right? Like I don't think they're obviously not lying, right? And I don't think uh even somebody like Sean Baker's trying to intentionally lie or that he is saying that the experiences he's seen people have are false, right? They're probably true. He has seen a ton of people perhaps have improvements in certain health-related outcomes. One of the reasons being everything you just explained, right? I think another reason Uh, We can argue here at least acute acute improvements is because if you do go from eating something like a traditional Western diet, right, with a lot of fast food, McDonald's, etc., pretty calorically dense um, diet, and then you switch to just eating meat, and again, meat is a minimally processed food, you reduce your overall caloric intake, you feel more satiated, you lose weight. Yeah, you're probably going to have some improvements in health-related outcomes because at the end of the day, we know that although food choices matter, overall physical shape probably matters more, right? So if you have excess adiposity, if you're fairly overweight or obese and you have a typical Western diet, switching over to a carnivore-ish diet may have some improvements in health. You probably will start feeling better. You might have improvements in your fasting blood sugar if you lose considerable weight, right? You might, even have, you might even have some improvements in blood lipids. And I know this is going to be highly specific on the individual and uh, different genetic factors here, but some people, if they lose 40, 50 pounds, no matter what they're eating, they're going to have improvements in their blood lipids, right? And so that, that goes into one of the points of like, oh, saturated fat's not bad because look at these people, their blood lipids have improved, right? And we'll talk a little bit more about that in terms of the cons, because I really want to focus here on what some of the potential pros are. Because here's the thing, like, we, you and I, not you and I, the science agrees that eating plants is better, right? Like consuming plants alongside consuming protein-rich foods. But I think we could argue that if, for some random obscure reason, somebody's like really, really against eating plants, right? And right now they eat a ton of like, highly processed foods, candy, chip, chips, et cetera, and they're willing to switch over to like a carnivorous diet, yeah, that probably is a little bit better if it results in them improving their overall shape, you know? So I guess compared to some other types of dietary patterns, they may there may be some benefits. What are your your thoughts on that?
1: I mean, I agree with you there. It, it's... A lot of people are going to be improving their nutrient quality if if they're yeah. especially if they're following it by including organ meats and things like that. Yeah. So they're going to be inc- improving their nutrient intake. They're going to re- reduce their consumption of highly processed foods, probably going to reduce their calorie consumption. And all of those things are going to lead to positive health effects. Yeah. If if we want to like look at the context of this, though, just take a look at the other side, like the same stuff occurs with <laughs> vegan diets. Like the yeah. exact same thing. Like you, if you go into vegan camps, You'll find people who are claiming that vegan diets cure everything. You'll find people who believe it. You'll find people who go on to a vegan diet and feel significantly better and then start to be an evangelist for that diet. And I that, that works. was, yeah, that was like, you know, that was a trend 10 years ago. And the funny thing is a lot of the carnivores used to be vegans. <laughs> it's these people that are going from like one ridiculous extreme to the next. And then because like, it, it's like. If you were a, um, what is it called when you, when you don't believe in God or I forget
0: the term, you are atheist,
1: atheist. Yes. Uh, so that's like going from like being an atheist evangelist to like a Christian evangelist, like a couple years later. And a lot of people are doing this, this like right now. And, um, it's just, you got to question people because if you listen to Paul Saladino, the guy who created the carnivore diet, he was vegetarian or vegan before. And he had digestive issues and then he turned to a carnivore diet. It's like, why would you follow the advice of someone who's
0: going to like these crazy extremes? Well, people don't know the background. People don't know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, when he explains it, I'm like, oh, this makes sense. He had digestive issues. When he took away plants, he felt better and he didn't know why because he doesn't know anything about nutrition. So like he tried to find out like his whole carnivore platform is trying to like explain what he personally felt. Because he doesn't actually understand nutrition, because if he did, it would be pretty easy to explain. You took away FODMAPs, you probably took away some other foods you're sensitive to, and now you feel better. And and it's like not really that complicated when yeah. people tell me, like what you said, people feel better, there's easy explanations for it. And the explanation isn't, you know, meat heals is what you know <laughs> kind of what we hear. That's not the explanation. The explanation yeah. is you reduce your calorie intake, you increase your micronutrient intake, or like you improve your micronutrient intake. You're avoiding foods you're sensitive to, not
0: meat heals. Like that's not, yeah. that's not the reality. Yeah. You know, and if we're going to be, if we're going to be generous here, I think one of the arguments that is a somewhat, somewhat fair argument is that meat is a very nutrient dense food, right? They all, they often use the word the most nutrient dense food, which I don't like for particular reasons because there's nutrients in plants that are not found in animal-based foods, but it is, like, meat is a pretty nutrient-dense food, right? And you're getting nutrients that you wouldn't get in plants. So it's funny because, like, the argument, we're not arguing, like, don't eat meat either. It's just, like, there isn't really a logical reason not to eat plants, right? And the the argument of meat heals is funny, but, you know, I wanted to be generous there because usually the terminology they use is, like, oh, meat is the most nutrient-dense foods. We'll talk about specific nutrients in a minute as well, but, you know, it's just, It's funny because you listen to it and like, there's just really, they never justify the don't eat plants part besides the people. And Sean Baker actually addressed this in the episode, you know, Saladino is one of these that's like vegetables are really bad for you, right? Saladino is pushing that message pretty strongly and somebody like Sean Baker. And I didn't know this nuance because I don't follow these people regularly, but I decided to listen to this episode. He's like, listen, I'm not saying that plant foods are trying to kill you or anything like that. I'm not one of those guys. I just know that with hundreds of people that I've worked with, if you just eat meat, everybody feels better. Right. So he's like, if you're, if you're an omnivore and you eat plants, whatever, but meat is superior type of thing, which is kind of silly. Um, I was going to bring something. Oh, I wanted to ask you your personal opinion on this because I like you think that there's probably some pretty bad long-term health consequences. Or let's not even say pretty bad long-term health consequences. Let's just say you're not going to have the best health outcomes because you could improve your health by eating more plant-based foods, right? Uh, Because again, if I had to choose, and these are extremes between eating just meat or just eating potato chips, I would probably eat just eating meat, right? But I would never just choose eating potato chips. It's just as silly. But in comparison, you'd probably have better health outcomes just eating meat. And then in addition, you'd have better health outcomes eating fruits and veggies on top of that, not just fruits and veggies, all plant-based foods. Um, but what do you think about what? What do you think is the justification or, or the explanation for people like Sean Baker, who reportedly have only been eating meat for the past seven or eight years, and that was the thing he brought up on the show. He's like, I have only consumed just steaks, not organ meat, just steaks for the past seven years, and he feels fantastic.
1: I mean, it's, it's tough. Man. It's definitely possible. I uh, I don't believe people. Um, I, I wouldn't, I, yeah. I would be willing to bet that that's not 100% true or there's some supplementation going on sure, um, or something. Because as I mentioned a second ago, most people, or not most, a good portion of people feel better when they first do. And so in the short term, they feel better. But if you look at long-term outcomes, and the only reason I've been able to see some of this is because I'm, I'm part of a... Uh, Uh, low-carb Facebook group and I also follow a page called Carnivore Cringe and I got into this low-carb Facebook group out of curiosity like years ago and what that group is right now because these people have been following low-carb mostly carnivore like they're all they're all super low-carb and mostly carnivore is now that Facebook group is daily post of people having side effects of the diet like every single day, it's like, my LDL is 400. You know, I have massive headaches. I have cramps all the time. And it's like, what should I do? And the answer is never eat carbs or eat more fruit. Everyone's
0: like, maybe you have seed oils in your diet somewhere that you haven't seen. Or or it's now you need grass-fed beef, right? It's probably the beef you're eating isn't good. You need higher quality beef.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. And in, in this, you know, this group and, and this other Carnivore Cringe page that's showing, because we don't have any data on this. We don't have, yeah. we have no data on what happens to people if they follow this type of diet long-term. And so we have to rely on anecdotal data, which is like Sean Baker saying he feels good after seven years, but we have plenty of examples on the other side of people who've been following this diet for yeah. years who have developed health issues. I got tagged in a post about a year ago where a guy had a stroke and he wow. tagged Sean Baker. He tagged... uh Paul Saladino, he tagged all the carnivore people. He's like, Hey, I had, like, did a reel on on social media and said, Hey, I had a stroke. Like, this is, the doctor said, This is definitely because of my diet. And, and (laughs) like, what's going on? I didn't know, like, you guys have told me that this was completely safe and no risk involved. And, and the guy's in his 30s and had a stroke. Like, yeah, this is occurring. But you'll never hear about it from those people who promote those diets. Of course. And so that individual, when they try to speak out about it, and he, he, he like, and I talked to him, like we had a one-on-one conversation. I was, he was like, man, I'm so disappointed because these people, you know, they put out all this content and I reached out to him. I DM them. I tried to tag yeah. them and none of them responded to me. And I'm yeah. just asking for clarification as to why this might have happened. And nobody was willing to give any type of response. And they just don't care. Like, they truly don't. Like, it, it's unfortunate, but, like, these people, they care more about convincing people to do something than they actually do about what actually happens to you. And, unfortunately, like, these long-term side effects are going to continue to occur at a much higher rate as we continue to see people who are following this diet for a longer period of time. Now, there may be cases like, Sean, where people feel great. Yeah, yeah. But- the other side of it is also occurring, and um, nobody's publicizing that. Like yeah. that, that side isn't being publicized. The other side is of, oh, I feel amazing, and and you know, I feel great. the other side's not really getting the the publication
0: yeah. time. Yeah, you know, there's always the possibility that people are lying about what they're doing. Let's, I, I'm going to say, giving him the benefit of the doubt, and let's say he's not lying. If I try to explain. Why somebody like Sean feels fantastic. It's probably one, there are statistical anomalies, right? There just are. And for like 10 million people who might have negative outcomes, there might be one person who has some positive outcomes, who knows? And then in addition to that, aside from that, you know, like this is a guy who really cares about his health. Nutrition is just one component. He works out extremely rigorously, very, very often. He has a really great body composition. He's probably on TRT and stuff like that. So extremely muscular works out very frequently, does both resistance and aerobic training I, I know this cause I've seen his social media. I see the posts he does with his workouts. He probably, you know, prioritizes sleep and stress management. He's very well off financially. So he's probably not stressing out about bills. He's probably has a pretty good chill life, you know, and all of these variables impact our health to a very similar degree as our nutrition, right? So our nutrition's one component. I mean, you see it all the, all the time. People have extremely adverse health effects due to just like stress over time, right? And so it's like, if you don't have any stress, and I don't know what his life is like, but let's say he has minimal stress, sleeps really well, has good genetics, works out really hard, has a great body composition. It makes sense that if his nutrition's not really the best, he's still going to be feeling pretty damn good because all of these other aspects of his health are optimized
1: yeah and the other side of this too is like you can find a hundred people or more than that you find tons of people who are following a standard western american diet yeah feel great yeah it like that doesn't it it's we have to think about the reference like of you know a lot of people say oh I felt better when I was going carnivore they probably weren't eating a really nutritious diet like before. yes
0: that's a great I'm, point
1: I'm almost 100% confident I would not feel better if I went carnivore cuz I don't feel good when I eat really heavy meat meals like I just yes. feel better when I have meals that are have more plants have you know healthy carbohydrates and and I I don't like just feel sluggish when I eat large portions of meat without much of anything else. And, and I do that occasionally as like a one meal. I can't imagine if I did that for every meal. But again, it depends on where you're coming from. For me, that would be removing a whole bunch of foods that have been shown to have positive effects on health and in favor of you know, more meat.
0: Yeah. Do you know um, any of the literature on specific plant foods perhaps causing reactions in individuals with audio, autoimmune conditions that are not digestive related conditions or perhaps not primary digestive conditions?
1: Yes. So um foods, uh like foods, the proteins in foods can be antigenic, or like meaning our immune system can respond to the proteins in various foods. This can happen to any food. Like we can- yeah pretty much have a negative immunological response and you can have like an autoimmune type of response to almost any food or an immunological response that exacerbates an autoimmune condition um the primary foods that cause this are the primary allergens like the top allergens if you look at the top allergens shellfish eggs soy wheat dairy these are the primary foods that can exacerbate autoimmune conditions and so if you go on a carnivore elimination diet, you're taking away yeah. all of those primary uh, foods. And so what, you know, because I work, half of my clients are more than that, have autoimmune conditions as well. And what we do is we just go down and we we'll, well, first we'll do a journal and kind of see, okay, are you eating a lot of dairy? Is this associated with any symptoms? Like go ahead and remove this and see if it has any benefit because yeah, you can go on a strict elimination of everything, but then you're stuck on a extreme diet that it's really hard to get off of. Because I've worked with digestive clients who have done that because they felt better and then their gut becomes more sensitive to other foods because they haven't eaten them in a while. And so they they try to expand their diet and their digestive symptoms are even worse than before because they haven't been eating those foods anymore and their digestive system is less able to help them digest them. So um, any food can exacerbate an autoimmune reaction. There's just some... Primary ones that tend to interact with our immune system, and those are the ones that tend to be food allergies. And so, you know, when we look at those, these are the main ones. And uh, you know, this is another reason for autoimmune conditions. And I've I've seen this with a lot of, and I've seen this with my clients. Like some of my clients, I put them like we I recommend more animal based diets for them because it it feels better for them. They feel better, and you can do it in a nutritionally adequate way without completely eliminating plants. When I say more animal based, we're, we're cutting out a lot of veggies, but we're still incorporating certain fruits, fruit juices, other things that they can tolerate, um, and making sure that they're getting their nutrients from, you know, cause like, let's say for example, if someone can't tolerate, you know, they don't want to eat fruits, well, they might do well with like grape juice you can get some anthocyanins yeah. from that and some of the nutrients that can come from grapes because, um, just like with like you mentioned a second ago, like animal foods have a lot of nutrients that you can't really find that aren't, you know, yeah. found in high quantities in plant foods, the same goes the other way. Like there's a yeah. lot of nutrients in plant foods that, that don't exist in animal foods and if you're avoiding those, um many of these have shown to have a variety of health benefits and avoiding them is likely gonna lead to
0: negative health implications over time hey guys some of you may not know that i'm the scientific advisor for a supplement company called outwork nutrition i help with the formulation of new products to help ensure that they're effective and backed by science unlike many other supplement companies out there we don't rely on exaggerated claims or flashy marketing tactics. Instead, we let the science speak for itself. We take pride in formulating products that deliver real results, helping you achieve your fitness goals in a meaningful way. If you're in the market for supplements like protein powder, pre-workout, or recovery products, make sure to check us out at outworknutrition.com. And as a thank you for being an avid listener of this podcast, use code Joey for an exclusive discount at checkout. You can find the link to our website down in the description of this podcast episode. Remember, our goal is to empower you with science-backed supplements that truly make a difference. Choose Outwork Nutrition and elevate your fitness to new heights. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, yeah, the reason why I brought up the autoimmune thing is because he he specifically mentioned people with specific skin conditions like eczema and perhaps rheumatoid, arth- rheumatoid arthritis as well, which is obviously an autoimmune condition. Um, and it makes sense, right? Because Unfortunately, some people's immune systems do funny things, right? Uh, I'm lucky that I don't have any allergy to anything really. I'm somewhat slightly sensitive to dairy, but I kind of just deal with it because I like ice cream and cheese. But for some people, you know, who have these unfortunate, um, immune conditions, certain foods can exa- exacerbate them. Right. And then again, if you just completely eliminate everything except meat, you're not going to perhaps, um, have as significant symptoms. And so it can seem like you've almost cured your condition, right? And in many ways, you quote unquote have cured your condition because you don't have any of the symptoms, but you're doing so in a way that's way more restrictive than what's actually necessary, right? And that's the other thing too. It's like eating should also be enjoyable. And if you're not having any of the stuff you enjoy, it makes it pretty difficult. Um, Is there such thing as people having an allergy to meat?
1: Yeah, there is. Um, So you can, uh, you can have a sensitivity to the meat proteins. Beef is the main one. Pork is, actually pork's the main one. Beef is second. So um, even, because I've met a lot of clients, I've worked with a lot of clients who have gone on like a carnivore diet, complete elimination, who have autoimmune issues that didn't, they didn't help it. Like it's not always the fact that you just need to avoid all these foods. Um, Oftentimes it's your immune system is highly reactive because you're not getting enough of various nutrients and you need to focus on you know, meeting that nutrient adequacy first, as opposed to trying to avoid a bunch of different foods. And then also a lot of times the highly reactive immune system. And this is why I've talked so much about the gut earlier because autoimmune issues, there's a major gut component to it. So yeah, highly reactive immune system oftentimes, um, is not always, but can, can often be associated with like increased intestinal permeability. Um, which is like ga- damage to the lining of your intestines. And what happens is your immune system, 60% of your immune system is on one side. There's like a single layer of cells. And then 60% of your immune system is hanging out behind that single layer of cells, like patrolling um, everything that comes in. So when you eat food, it goes into your digestive tract, gets absorbed. And the first thing that it comes into contact with when it gets absorbed is a whole bunch of immune cells that are kind of, it's like border patrol. They're making sure that it's the right things get in and the right the wrong things don't get in. And what happens is if that border is compromised because you took NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, or you were under a lot of stress, yeah. you're over-exercised, you overexercise, you do not enough sleep, or you know other medications can contribute to that as well, like proton pump inhibitors, then that can lead to damage of that gut lining, which leads to the immune system just getting bombarded with um, things that it's not supposed to be coming into contact. With. So all of these undigested food proteins and bacteria and yeast that will cross that that barrier in the gut and trigger the immune system, and that is one of the that's a big contributor to autoimmune conditions is this digestive um, you know in t- increased intestinal permeability and, and damage to the gut yeah. line
0: What are some of the main markers people could look at in blood work to know if they have um, a compromised digestive system or, or increased intestinal permeability? permeability I should say
1: so that's really hard yeah. um, there's not any so there's a test that you can do where you drink a solution and you, you look at the sugars that get urinated out. It's a pretty invasive test and it's often not going to be performed and it's not going to be covered by insurance. It would cost a lot of money. You can also get what's called a cow Um If you do a stool test through your doctor, you can ask to make sure it has cow measure. And that calprotectin is a measure of inflammation of your intestinal lining. Um, there's not great ways besides the drinking the sugary solution and it's just too invasive. The reality is most people don't need to determine whether or not they have increased intestinal permeability. Like that's not something that you can directly treat. Um, if you're experiencing digestive symptoms, then goal is to get away, like to modify your diet to, to such a degree that you're not experiencing those digestive symptoms anymore. And that oftentimes will, give your digestive system the opportunity to, like, repair that that lining. Um, But that's... It's really complicated. <laughs> I guess the, yeah. the GI issues can get really complicated because there's not really... there There's ways to test it, but it's not... It just doesn't make sense to test it because of like, the increase in intestinal permeability isn't... Is a consequence of other things, typically. So, you're testing, like, an outcome... Or, like, you're testing something that's not actually treatable. Do you know if zonulin is a good biomarker yeah yeah so zonulin calprotectin those are so zonulin is measuring a response to gluten more so than specifically um, yeah so um calprotectin is the one that's measuring inflammation zonulin is measuring like that the permeability but again these things are just they they, we don't know how to interpret these things at this point that makes sense and they're not um it's not treatable. Like there's no, there's no way to directly address the increased intestinal permeability besides removing the things that caused it. And then, which is oftentimes, you know, some of the foods that are causing sensitivities and things like that. Um, And so that's the, the challenges with GI issues. It's, it's a lot of just going by symptoms, patient history response to dietary change, as opposed to having like,
0: Really good testing that'll tell you what to do. No, that makes perfect sense. I think we've covered really well, the claim of why people see some benefits on the carnivore diet, right? And why in some specific contexts, it can help reduce um, certain symptoms associated with digestive conditions, can help with obesity. If you're losing body fat, it may, you know, improve glycemic regulation, perhaps even blood lipids. So some people will see some improvements, right? I think the next claim I really want to address is the one regarding LDL cholesterol. And you and I talked a good amount about this in the last episode that we recorded together. So we won't go super in detail in terms of like why LDL cholesterol causes heart disease. Um, And if you guys are interested in learning more about that, just check out the last episode I did with Adrian, which was probably like six or seven episodes ago. I like Adrian. I I have him on a lot. (laughs) um but the claim is that most of the data looking at the effects of cholesterol on cardiovascular outcomes is observational and it's not good research that's one claim the other claim is that we actually see people who have higher cholesterol live longer that one's a little bit funny and then uh He also mentions the fact this hypothesis, I forgot what he called it, that apparently is being currently tested. So there's no evidence to support or not support this, but it's the idea that when you are not consuming carbohydrates, um, having high cholesterol is not indicative of poor cardiovascular health because your liver is actually producing and sending out more cholesterol in response to not eating carbohydrates, because it's sending out more lipids as a fuel source. And I think this is one of those things that makes mechanistic sense, just like the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity, where you can connect the dot, right? Um, And then unfortunately, it's just like, we just don't really have a ton of data on carnivores and their LDL levels. And and health-related outcomes, he mentioned, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I, he mentioned that there should be a study being published towards the middle of December that's actually looking at a predominantly meat-based diet on uh, cardiovascular outcomes. And this is an interventional study, and people have been on this diet for, I think, a little over a year, and what they're publishing is preliminary data. I think he mentioned it's going to be out in, like, on like the 8th of December. So I don't know if he shot himself in the foot by saying that or whether it's true or not. I guess we'll see what the data on that show. But let's address um, each of those claims. First, let's start with LDL data not being rigorous. (laughs) What are your thoughts on that?
1: I mean, this has been tested in every form of trial ever. Observational data, there's been randomized trials. There's been Mendelian randomization studies, like genetic studies, like Every type of research study that's ever been done has shown an association or a relationship between LDL cholesterol and heart disease. Now, the 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 thing is, it's not the only risk factor. That that's the important piece that yeah. uh, I think is kind of gets lost in this. Is where the carnivore people try to make it seem like this is the only thing people are paying attention to when when it's really not. It's just you're not just going to ignore a risk factor. One of the things that I um. I always I always just flip it around like imagine if imagine if I was on the other side and I said oh it doesn't matter if you have diabetes because you're eating low you're as long as you're eating a low fat diet it's fine it's fine yeah. your blood sugar is completely out of control and you have diabetes as long as you're eating a low fat diet that's fine like that's that's the same as what they're saying with LDL cholesterol um this is a- I've never thought about it that way that's hilarious like I mean it, the first time I heard it I'm like <laughs> This is wild. Like, imagine if I said that, like people, would, they, yeah. they, anybody would be like, that makes no sense. But apparently somehow it makes sense on the other side. Um, so it it just, you know, there's, there's no, this is just not supported by evidence. This is someone yeah. who said, I like this diet and I want to convince other people that it it's, you know, something that they should be doing. Um, but if you're, if you follow a higher, you know, higher animal based diet and your LDL cholesterol goes up. You're increasing your risk of heart disease. Now, if if your blood glucose goes down and your insulin goes down and, you know, your blood pressure improves, you lose weight, maybe you're reducing your risk. Yeah. Even though you're your losing right? Yeah. Like, because of, but the reality is you can do all of that and have a low LDL by not following a carnivore diet. Like, you can lose weight, improve your blood pressure, improve, improve all of your lipids and blood glucose. By following a balanced diet, like you don't, there's no reason to have a high LDL cholesterol if you don't have to. Now, it's one thing if like there was no diet that would control everything and, you know, you have to make a trade-off and it's either going to be high LDL or some other effect. But the reality is that doesn't have to be the case. If you follow a balanced diet, you can manage your LDL, have good blood glucose levels, HDL, blood pressure, everything great with
0: a, a you know a sensible dietary approach. Yeah, it's funny the argument of all this data is observational is funny, right? Because looking at the effects of a particular biom- biomarker on a health related outcome is by nature observational, right? You can't have an intervention. I guess you could to purposely increase somebody's LDL and then see heart disease aus- outcomes, but even then it's still a correlation because you're not. Like the 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 variable you're you're um you're manipulating isn't LDL directly. It's a certain dietary protocol that will result in an increase in LDL. So regardless of how you look at it, you can't have a randomized controlled clinical trial that intentionally, you know, increases LDL to see a particular outcome. So it's going to be observational in nature. And also heart disease takes time to develop. So like the the nature of the research is observational. And what we mean by observational is You're not giving somebody something and measuring an outcome. You're just seeing correlations over time, right? Oh, in general, people who have higher LDL, um, tend to have heart disease more frequently, that's an observation, right? And the nature of that research is observational and yes, observational data isn't inherently the strongest type of data. However, when you have observational data that shows the same stuff across different populations in millions of people, it becomes pretty damn strong, right? Like it, it, that is very strong data. And then in addition, something that he mentioned that is just not true, is that a lot of these correlational uh, studies or observational studies, and this is something that everybody in every nutrition camp uses like this justification, which is just a straight up lie, is that these studies don't account for confounding variables, right? You hear that all the time, like, well, they don't account for, Their bread intake and sugar intake, and they don't account for their BMI. That's not true. (laughs) Some don't, but most of these well-controlled studies, I I won't say well-controlled, but well-designed studies are looking at these confounding variables, right? LDL is an independent risk factor. What, What that means is that independent of these additional variables, higher LDL is still associated with heart disease, whether you are overweight or not overweight, whether you have high carbohydrate intake or low carbohydrate intake, right? These studies do account for these variables and still see the significant effect. So that one is funny because people don't know that level of detail, right? People just hear it and they're like, oh, that's crazy that these studies don't look at these other things. It's like, no, they actually do look at these other things. It's wild, man.
1: It's unfortunate too, because someone who has like a, you know, he's a medical doctor and it's really easy Mm -hmm. to just say, you know, these and and as you mentioned, like you can just say these things, like you can... And you don't have to back it up. And the other side of it, uh, so sometimes you'll see people back some of this up with cherry-picked research because there's thousands of studies published on cholesterol and heart disease outcomes. And um, there's one particular study that I've seen cited by pretty much every carnivore diet proponent. And I think you were referred to it a second ago when you said that uh, uh, he claimed that, Sean Baker claimed that having a higher LDL cholesterol was protective and led to yes. a longer lifespan. Um I've seen this claim a dozen times. They always cite the same study. It was a study of old, older adults. I think it was 70 to 80 years old. And they measured their LDL cholesterol when they were admitted to the emergency room. So LDL cholesterol will go down if you're experiencing like a extreme infection or extreme illness, your LDL cholesterol will go down and so it, it measuring people's ldl cholesterol on on admittance to you know the hospital the people with the lowest ldl cholesterol are sickest like it's not it, it it's very simple to explain this when you actually understand uh how this works and sure. it, so they're taking i've seen this study cited at least a dozen times by all everyone who's you know a proponent of the animal based you know diet camp and and they always say this is like well you know, it, it's protective and leads to a longer lifespan. It only leads to a longer lifespan in really old adults who are getting admitted to the hospital because individuals who had low LDL at that point
0: were really sick and those people yeah. were going to die earlier. You know, that would be perfect example with diabetes too, in terms of hypoglycemia. It's like, you know, it's the same thing. If Oh, if low sugar is good for your health, then why do people who have You know, if your blood sugar is too low, you die. Like it's the same type of silly argument. And it's because, but it's simply like everything in our body has a role, right? And everything probably exists in an optimal concentration where it's healthy and having it too high is bad. And perhaps having it too low is also bad, right? That's another funny thing. It's like, I've heard some people on the vegan side, like say that their goal is to get their cholesterol as absolutely low as possible. And that's silly too, because cholesterol, Plays functions in our in our body, right? So it's like both arguments, like just because it's high doesn't mean that having it as low as possible is is optimal for health either, right? Same thing with like pretty much everything, but I can think of one that's often brought up as estrogen, particularly in men, right? Like, listen, estrogen, yes, is not the predominant sex hormone in men, but it still has very important physiological functions. It's important for bone health. It's important for vitamin D homeostasis, right? Like it's it's important for, um, or the other way around, I should say, but it's important for for different things. And to say that men should have no estrogen or, or foods that are estrogenic okay. <laughs> are bad for men, it's so silly, right? We see Paul Saladino talk about this with soy food. Oh. Um, and he cites things that you see like a small change in serum testosterone. And one, it could be an artifact. And two, a change in like, A little bit of testosterone doesn't mean anything, right? It's just silly arguments. Um, okay. So LDL we've covered that we've covered, covered chronic disease prevention. Let's talk about the idea that fiber is not an essential nutrient, and the justification or the explanation for why studies show that higher fiber intake is beneficial is just because fiber is essentially a proxy for he said two things. One, dietary quality, because he argues that, you know, eating fruits and veggies and high fiber foods is better than highly processed foods. That's one thing. And then he says that fiber is also just a proxy for overall socioeconomic status. And the argument there is that if you're eating more fiber, you're probably eating more fruits and veggies that are a little bit more expensive than ultra processed foods. So you're probably better off uh financially and we know that social economic status is associated with health effects too that's the workaround that he uses to explain that fiber is not essential and that's why these these studies show that fiber improves health what are your thoughts
1: Um, so fiber is not essential is a true statement
0: yeah how do we define the word
1: essential essential means that if we don't have it we will die and so we don't need fiber to, to stay alive. Like, it's not a nutrient that our body absolutely needs to stay alive. We don't even absorb it into our body. It stays in our digestive tract. Um, it's, it's actually a nutrient that never enters our body at all. Um, but the effects that it has on our health are, are exerted through our digestive system. And so I want to address that piece of, like, the fiber is a marker for healthier, you know, nutrition there's multiple studies dozens and dozens and dozens of studies that have supplemented with fiber so they're not looking yeah. at improved diet they're giving people fiber yeah. Giving people psyllium husk or chia seed or flax seed or some other fiber source and they're looking at health outcomes they're looking at markers of inflammation blood sugar control cholesterol levels blood pressure and overwhelmingly fiber leads to positive effects like for example chia seed there's over or not chia seed flaxseed there's over 100 studies where people have been given flaxseed and shown improvements in constipation shown improvements in blood lipids shown improvements in blood glucose control shown improvements in inflammatory markers and and blood pressure and this is just a supplemental fiber source now flaxseeds has some omega-3 fatty acids as well um but most of that benefit or large portion of that benefit is likely coming from the fiber another um a Very common supplement that is well studied is psyllium husk. That's been used in another fifty plus trials, and that's just pure fiber. And yeah. you know, there's been numerous health benefits shown from from uh, supplementation with psyllium husk. So claiming that you know the the associated benefits yeah. that have shown in various studies as a result of better diet quality or you know socioeconomic statuses is insane. And when it comes to socioeconomic status, the thing that correlates with socioeconomic status, traditionally more than anything else, it's typically protein, not
0: fiber. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And, you know, I was going to say the argument he would say about chia seeds is that the chia seeds is likely displacing some of the other ultra processed foods that the people are consuming. I think psyllium husk is the best example, because that's just a supplement, right? It's nothing else, but just fiber and like you mentioned, you see health improvements with just supplementation, right? It would be the same thing as making the argument about protein powder, that the benefits of protein are because it displaces some other food, right? And I'm sure, obviously, it's a it's a cumulative effect because if somebody does start to eat more fruits and veggie and fiber rich foods and they eat less ultra processed foods, likely it's a cumulative benefit, right? Um, that being said, though, it's a, it is a funny argument. Uh, so it, it's just like. Yeah, it's it's just a funny argument to try to always justify a particular narrative, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, th- there's a few specific things that everyone says, like all the carnivore people are, fiber is not essential, LDL isn't important, people feel better when they follow all this stuff, you know, and, and these things, there's a little bit of truth to them, but then they're just stretching it and presenting it in
0: a way that it's just not, uh, not in line with reality. Yeah. It's a silly man. Like there's plenty of interventional data on fiber too, right? Like, uh, the argument of observational data is not even uh, valid there at all because there's plenty of, of interventional data. Okay. What I was going to mention was in terms of like essential nutrients, because this is an argument, uh, that's made often, right? Like, oh, it's not essential. You can live without it. Sure. You can live without it, but you will probably live longer and healthier with it. And you can make the same argument about, and this is where I think you and I both talk about specific nutrients in plants that can't be found in in animal-based foods, just like all phytonutrients, right? Which are not essential. So phytonutrients, guys, are essentially very similar to vitamins, but they're not essential. The vitamins that we need in our diet that are essential, we can't live without. But these phytonutrients essentially can have vitamin-like benefits and antioxidative and anti-inflammatory properties. And there's plenty of data to show that they're really good for our health, right? Now, yeah, we can live without them, but I would, right, Uh, unless you really don't hate a particular type of food, but very few people I think don't like any plant-based food, it's just a silly argument overall. And so I think this is probably a a good transition point to discuss, you know, I think there's some pretty obvious stuff that people are picking up from what we're saying, but why it's a good idea to include plenty of plant-based foods, right? Fiber is one component, as we've discussed fibers associated with health, health outcomes, one of the things fiber does is reduce LDL cholesterol, right? And that's a direct mechanism as to why it may reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, fiber helps with glycemic regulation, right? Fiber can help slow down gastric emptying, which can have certain digestive health benefits as well. There's some pretty good evidence showing that some of the short chain fatty acids that are produced in the microbiome. Life by the uh, digestion of fiber can be pretty helpful as well. So there's a number of different mechanisms by which it's helpful. And by the way, I know my pronunciation there isn't the best. best. I'm trying to say healthful, full of health. Okay. And then uh, when it comes to, to other plant-based foods, these phytonutrients, as I mentioned, are associated, or at least mechanistically, make sense that they can help reduce the risk of certain diseases as well. And if you're eating a ton of them from a ton of different plant-based foods, it's probably going to have a cumulative effect as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as you mentioned with the phytonutrients, uh, what a lot of people don't realize there's thousands of different identified compounds in plant foods and pretty much every compound that we've studied so far when we study it in a lab has, seems to have, like you said, mechanistic benefits. So like, for example, when we take extracted uh, nutrients from broccoli and mix that with cancer cells in a test tube, it will prevent the growth of those cancer cells and prevent like the growth of some, in, in some cases now, it depends on the type of cancer and things like that. But there are, this is one of the most, this is one something that fascinated me more than anything about nutrition when I started getting into the literature was looking at all of the different plant compounds and their um, preclinical research studies, like all the me- mechanistic benefits of like the anthocyanins yeah. and berries, the lycopene and tomatoes, the, um, every single uh, plant food has a number of different compounds that when those compounds are studied, they have nothing but positive effects. Like like when we isolate them and it, extract them and give them to animals in higher concentrations, they have like pretty significant health benefits. Um, and, and this is, like Joey said, one of the reasons why um, consuming more plant foods as a, as a greater proportion of your diet is generally associated with a longer lifespan. Like when we look at um, individuals who have the longest lifespans and the major studies that, that are available, the, the groups who eat the most plants tend to live the longest. And that's not, you know, it's pretty consistent.
0: Yeah, I, I actually wanted to bring that up because it's funny that most of the blue zones, and I know it, it, it goes beyond just diet, but diet is an important component meat is not necessarily one of the predominant food sources. Actually, across the board, it's not, right? Um, how, how, do you, how do you watch that new show on Netflix? I did. The Blue Zone show? Yeah. Yeah, so in Japan, for example, it was like sweet potatoes, right? Um, I think somewhere else it was like corn. Anyways, predominantly plant-based foods. Um, and yeah, they include some meat, but it's typically a minimal component of the diet. And we're not saying that... You know, if you want to be healthier, you have to limit meat consumption either. I think one of the things I really want to discuss is what sort of dietary choices can you make to include additional amount of meat in your diet if you like it, and still be pretty healthy overall? right? And we'll talk about those in a second. but it's just funny because I wonder what argument people in the carnivore community have against like the blue zones, because across the board, meat is not a predominant source of of meat. And in some of them, if it is, It's seafood based. And most of the carnivore community is not pushing eating a ton of fish. Like that's not what they're pushing, you know? Just like, that would be, dude, that's actually a pretty good dietary camp. Like just eat fish, nothing else. (laughs) Are you tired of spending countless hours grocery shopping, cooking, and preparing your meals? I get it. Time is precious. And that's where Icon Meals comes into play. I've partnered with Icon Meals to bring you delicious, macro-friendly, and high-protein meals that will make it easier than ever for you to achieve your fitness goals. I understand that you may have hesitations over the cost of a meal prep service compared to cooking food at home. But let's face it, how often do you spend more money eating out because you didn't have time to prepare your food at home anyways? With Icon Meals, you not only save time, but you invest in your health. These meals are carefully crafted to be healthier and more in line with your fitness goals than most of the food that you eat out anyways. So why wait? Visit iconmeals.com and explore their wide array of mouth-watering meals. And as a special bonus for listening to this podcast, use code JOSEPH10 at checkout for a special discount off of your order. By the way, you can find all of the necessary links in the description of this podcast. Don't let time be a barrier to your success. Choose Icon Meals and fuel your journey towards a healthier, fitter... Yeah, that would probably lead to some of the same negative health outcomes as... uh... But it's new. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. The the seafood diet. Yeah. But um, have you heard anything about that regarding arguments against some of the blue zones?
1: I have. Um, from more animal-based diet proponents, and they just basically say that it's a misrepresentation of what these people are actually eating.
0: And you know, oh, like, I have heard that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they just don't discredit know. it. But the reality is, like, this is well established. Like, this is what in not just the blue zones but in all the yeah. like all the studies that have been done like more plants lower rates of cancer lower rates of heart disease lower rates of you know death and diabetes like every single health outcome is is positively affected by consuming a greater proportion of our diet from plants yeah. now um i want to also discuss like mention that that doesn't mean you have to go vegan as you mentioned because in these studies when I say a greater proportion of the diet from plants, um, the average person's eating so little plants, the people who are eating <laughs> a greater proportion of yeah, the yeah, diet yeah. from plants are eating like five servings a day. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. vegetables. It's not, you know, it's not these people, like the people who are living the longest and they have the, are in the highest plant consumption group. They're not even, it's not that these people are just revolving their entire diet. Yeah. Plant. It's like we're, we're when we talk about studies, we're talking about general population, um, you know, and and we're separating the people who eat the most plants out of the general population uh, have longer health, you know, have better health outcomes. Those people aren't eating that much. They're eating like five seconds a day. You know, the general recommendation
0: that most people don't. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, there's one point here that I just thought of that I want to address that I actually haven't even brought up at all. Um, And, you know, a lot of these diet camps at the end of the day, argue that mainstream science is a conspiracy, right? And I think you and I are both well-equipped to talk about this and I want to just touch on it lightly. And maybe this can even be a really good topic for a future episode, but it's this idea that studies are funded by industry. People who work in, in these industry-based companies actually come from government funded jobs. And when they were in government funded jobs they would lobby or they would pass laws that benefit these industry-based companies. And now they get really good job in these companies. And so now they just like skew all the science to show that the stuff that these companies are producing is good. Okay. And I think for somebody who does not understand how research works at all, like that kind of makes sense. Right. And you're like, oh, this guy got a job there and he has these ties. Like, of course he's going to push this food. And I think, People just don't understand how science actually works, right? Because listen, could all science be completely faked? That would be a major conspiracy, right? And some people really believe in conspiracies. So I guess regardless of what we say, some people are still going to believe this. But essentially every single scientist at every single university for the past 100 years who have studied nutrition needs to be corrupt, <laughs> pretty much, because all of the evidence shows that consuming plants are, are beneficial, right? So then you, it would have to be essentially every single person who has published stuff has been corrupt, and the likelihood of that is very, very unlikely. Where I went to school, I literally saw no corruption. Um, I don't know what your experience was like at your university, but it's not that comes about. It's crazy so it's
1: important to discuss this. I don't know if you've talked about. It. I have a whole episode talking about
0: it. I don't. Um
1: nutrition science is not corrupt. It it you will lose your job. If you're if you're a scientist and you try to fudge data in any way, like there are multiple checks and balances in place. Your co-authors, there's people who review your paper, there's the person who funded your uh you know study which sometimes can be like the dairy or meat or egg industry and typically the crazy thing about this is like you'll hear these people talk about the sugar industry so much the main industry that funds research is animal foods like it's it's dairy eggs and in yeah uh, beef like the only funding that anyone had in my department was from the dairy and from the egg boards you know that no one had any oh actually one person had funding from the whole grain uh the whole grain like board because he was you know because he was promoting whole grains, basically, um, but the um, this like people had funding, but the 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 funders play no role in the research like it would be your university first of all when you get like let's say let's say the egg board gave me money to do a study, I have to get that study approved by administrators from my university, then I have to run the, that are not in the nutrition space yeah they're not in the nutrition space and who are who care more about the university's reputation than they do about you publishing your little paper. And so they will not allow a study that's, you know, designed in a manipulative way or or done in a way that's going to, you know, create data that's, you know, misleading in some way. So you have that check and then you have, you know, you have co-authors that, you know, no one wants to ruin their reputation by being published on a paper with you when you're making up data. And then you publish the paper and you have people who review the paper before it can be published who require looking at every aspect of how you designed it and criticize every aspect of it. Yeah, It would be so difficult to publish even one paper where you're (laughs) fudging the data, Um, much less a bunch of them. And, And the other side of it is like nutrition scientists, if you go to any university throughout the country, you will find that these people are making, I mean, they're highly educated. So some people will say, oh, that's a lot of money. But they're making low six figures in most cases, if that.
0: And, and when we they, say low
1: because people might be take, thinking two or three hundred thousand, we're talking yeah, like 110,000. On I'm saying like 105, 110,000, like yeah. that's a good salary for a starting professor who's going to be working 75 so. hours a week, like yeah. on doing research, teaching classes, running studies, like this is not a job that people go into for a month. Like nobody becomes a nutrition scientist because yeah. it's a path to wealth. Yeah. I promise you that like no one goes through a whole PhD because this was like the easiest path to wealth. Like it yeah. is a passion it is a field where if someone's going this deep into it typically it's because of interest and passion as opposed to I'm just trying to make a bunch of money, you know, working doing studies for the egg board or the dairy industry or whatever.
0: Yeah. So a couple of points here I want to go into a little bit deeper. Because first first and foremost they use phrases like Uh, The USDA put out a study, right? Or this study was funded by the USDA. And it makes it seem like the USDA just like says, this is a study. And they just like put it out, right? Like most research is conducted at universities by independent investigators. So like professors at universities do the majority of research. There's some privately funded research as well. And there's some government uh, research institutions as well, but it's mainly produced by universities. I don't know the exact percentage. I would probably argue more than 80 or 85% of research yeah, is be at least from universities. Right. So it's not like the university is part of the USDA and the USDA is just saying publish this and they just like put out a study. Okay. So studies are not just put out, they are years to conduct at universities and professors do not have any sort of tie to a particular like funding Well, you know, they can get funded multiple times by an agency, but usually it's not like, Hey, I'm publishing this for you. Right. And in addition to that. Um, you always disclose funding, right? So it's, Hey, you have to get money somewhere to conduct research. It's really expensive. The least you could do is disclose where you're getting that funding from. In addition to that, this is, I think where this argument is really silly. Um, they always talk about big food companies like Nabisco, right? It's like, those are not the main funders of research. Right. If they, I never applied for a grant from Nabisco. I don't know about you. Like. But, most of the research in nutrition, first off, is not being paid by big food companies that are selling things like potato chips and cookies. Those are not the companies funding nutritional research, as you mentioned, things like the egg board uh the dairy council, et cetera, right Like we got a lot of our funding from like the almond board and the california dried plum those were the 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 funding boards that we applied to a lot because if we did work with those foods and the funny thing is this almost like Bits in the argument of that research is being funded just to make a ton of money because who is making money? I mean, obviously, if in the US people eat a ton of almonds, but it's not like people are becoming billionaires off like selling more almonds, right? Or more prunes or more uh, eggs, right? And these are, these are the types of, of boards that are funding research. And it's funny to say it's like, oh, it's big food because it's not. It's like these boards are and they're doing it to advanced nutritional research right and then it's just it, so silly the other side of it is most of it is
1: funded by taxpayers like through the NIH and National Science Foundation yeah, yeah, the of American course. Heart Association all of like most most of the research 85 80% yes. is funded by taxpayers through government organizations that have another really rigorous set of checks and balances in order to get that funding and be able to have the opportunity to run projects with that funding yeah and it's it's a really difficult job a really um you know thankless job like these nutrition scientists like i mean that's what we went to school for this like i i there wasn't that wasn't the life that I wanted is like working that much, um, running research all the time, constantly applying for grants, and you know, it's it's not as like the these scientists are not living this luxurious life of like wealth because they're publishing studies. It's so far from the truth, and that's how it's often yeah. painted out.
0: Yeah. And then the argument that like we can't disprove is because you talk about government agencies funding research. And that's where they're like, you can't trust the government agencies. And the whole argument that they use is that people who are in government agencies who are giving the green light to fund this research are doing so because they are aligned with a particular career path that then is going to help them benefit financially somehow, because they have some sort of financial ties to some of these big food companies. And so they are incentivized to fund research that is going to show that these bad foods are good. Listen, Adrian and I cannot prove that that's wrong because we just don't have that sort of insight. But if you believe that, you might as well believe that the earth is flat, right? Like seriously, it's the same type of argument, right? The
1: other side of it is the government agencies they recruit nutrition scientists to decide who gets the grants. Like yeah, the agencies, yeah, 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 It's not even okay. employees of the government agencies that are handing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it. a great point. They're yeah. recruiting independent professors to review the grant applications to decide who actually gets the funding. Like, yeah. there's so... They're, the the process of scientific research is probably one of the most rigorous, yeah. well-controlled, like ch- like, more checks and balances than almost any other industry or process. And then people to come and turn and say, oh, this is all made up is like so like misleading. And then and then on the other side, they're saying, oh, you know, you can't trust research. So believe me. Like, yeah. What? Like that, that's yeah. the part that blows my mind is like I can't <laughs> trust all of these highly trained scientists who have dedicated their lives to studying this topic and advancing this field forward and who do so with very little personal financial benefit, but I'm going to trust you who benefits from getting me to believe what you want me to believe. And yeah. you have a direct financial benefit from it. Like all of these people telling you not to trust the government and not to trust. Almost all of them have a direct financial benefit for convincing you of that. Like they're trying to convince you of that so that can they can sell you some other BS that isn't supported by research. And they are the ones that are like, that have the financial benefit. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you like making up a story to get you to think otherwise. It, it's sad to see because like, as a consumer, you're, it's really hard to like, see through that. Like, if you see someone who has an MD, who's telling you that he healed his, you know, health conditions with the carnivore diet, and then. He also helped others do it, and he shows like you know testimonials of other people doing it, and then he goes on and tells you the story about the government you know being corrupt and doing it like it's really hard to be able to see through that unfortunately and um that's that's where you know social media there's there's some benefits to social media but but oftentimes it it gives people a platform to um who are just charismatic and who can convince people of things and yeah. they are able to uh, mislead a lot of people for their own benefit because they're just good on camera or they take extreme positions that that are, you know, just get people's attention.
0: Yeah. No, dude, it, it's a, when you say it that way of like, don't trust the government, but then they're like, trust me. It's such a funny way of putting it. You know, the last thing I want to touch on here, um, because I think it's important, like how people understand how some of these uh organizations come up with consensus as well right because i think the fda is probably like the least trusted organization people hate the fda overall and when i talk i specifically mention fda when i talk about uh the limits for specific artificial sweeteners right like general fda consensus and people are like how can you trust the fda blah 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 and listen first off like i don't know the entire history of the fda have some things been incorrect, perhaps we all get things wrong. But to them that use that as a justification for like all of it is wrong is extremely silly. And two, the FDA is not just making up these values, right? Because I think one of the things that people argue about is like, you know, it always comes down to uh, uh, vaccination, right? And maybe some claims were made that didn't have the strongest scientific backing, right? And the claims were relatively strong. And we won't talk about specific claims about vaccination, but that's the general gist of it. It's like, they said this, there wasn't much evidence for that. How can they say that? Right. But then to use that as an argument to say that, like, anything the FDA says is silly, one is very silly, because the main argument was that there wasn't scientific backing. But all of these other things that we are sharing do have scientific backing. That's argument one, right? Like, research on aspartame, for example, there's a ton of it. So there's scientific backing to back up the claims. In addition, The FDA doesn't just like say, "Oh, these are the levels." Right? You get you get a group of experts again. Oftentimes, these are nutrition researchers, and they meet over several days, go over all the research, they argue both sides of the argument, right? Uh, Pros, cons, and then based off of the available research, they put out consensus, right? But the consensus is based off of the abundance of, of literature. It's not just somebody at the FDA says this; they're putting it out because they have a financial tie to coke and they want you to drink artificial sweeteners. So you get cancer, and then they're going to get a really high up position at Coca-Cola, right? Like that's just, it's not how it works. It's just a, it's, it's very imaginative. I'll say that. <laughs> uh, I mean, we, with that said, there is corruption
1: in the government. Yes, of course. of course. I mean, there's definite corruption at the high levels, but, uh, you know, to, to believe this stuff, you have to, really think that like every single person working in these government organizations is like in on this conspiracy and you probably yeah. have a neighbor or you know a, a, someone you know that lives down the street from you or one of your kids friends that works in one of these organizations and I promise you they're not out to damage your health like I've met many 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 people who have worked at the FDA and they are all great people who are trying to do a good job and who are trying to regulate things one of the biggest issues, um, and it's just people don't understand. Like you can create a narrative around things, but you have to understand that the FDA is re- is responsible for evaluating so many like different items, yeah. and that's impossible. Like unless unless they're given like just this massive budget, so all these food companies they're creating these different compounds and trying to introduce them into the food supply, and the FDA is like, you know, trying to regulate all of that with with limited resources. And that's difficult. So things are going to slip through the cracks in some cases. But you'll see in, you'll see FDA recalls this item or FDA, you know, takes this off the shelf, like trans fats, for example, if the government was trying to kill us, they would still allow trans fats in the food. Like that. that Yeah, that's a great point. As soon as the evidence came out that trans fats were pretty damaging and it was pretty clear, the government made sure that food companies took them out of food, like, that if they were really like if the fda was really trying to kill us that's the easiest thing to do is just ignore the evidence on trans fat yeah. and leave it in there because that's
0: one of or the fudge things it you can eat or what or fudge it and say that trans fats are good for us yeah. right because that's okay. essentially what people are saying with some of these other things they're not saying that the fda is ignoring data they're saying that the that these organizations are essentially <laughs> making up data to show that bad things are actually good <laughs> yeah. that's here's the thing here's the thing right like If something is profitable, companies can pivot, right? Like, let's say, for example, like, it's not that a company is selling a product with an artificial sweeteners, with an artificial sweetener, and then like, all of the laws, all of the signs, all of the data are then going to be shifted to that artificial sweetener being healthy, right? Like, if there was a demand for a different type of product that is really healthy, I promise you there would be a ton of companies making money off that healthy product right? So it's it's just supply and demand. These companies make a lot of money because people buy the product. Uh, you know, if people still smoke cigarettes, even though they know they're bad, you don't need data to be fudged for people to still drink Coke, for people to still, I mean, it's just such a silly argument. And again, it's not even these companies really, like, there's no science saying that Coke is good for you. So to say that, like, these processed food companies are the ones that are funding this research and fudging it is silly because you know, the privately funded stuff is is not from most of these like super processed food companies. Um anyways, we've been talking about this for a while. The last thing I wanted to talk about, man. So hopefully you guys are convinced, right? And if you're not convinced, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's tough, man. I don't know. I I love talking about conspiracies because they're just like interesting and like the thought process behind them. But I don't believe in any of them. Except maybe, except maybe aliens. So I'm kinda convinced. It I used to believe all this stuff. Really? In, in my
1: early twenties. Um, because I, I got into this well I get into this field from like the wellness side of things. Like I had a mm-hmm. digestive issue. I searched all over Google, found all these blogs with different things and did some things improved my health, and that's kinda how I got into nutrition. Okay. And so um all everything that I read back then was like FDA is trying to kill you, government's trying to harm you. And I was already like pretty like skeptical of the government already so i didn't need you know you didn't have to convince me too much at that <laughs> point and um it wasn't until i got to my phd and i'm like oh wow these people are not corrupt and these scientists yeah. are actually like working hard and because i was thinking oh i'm gonna go to my phd and i'm gonna change the system because they're all doing it wrong and there, there's a bunch of corruption and you know you hear all this stuff and i'm like you know what i I wanna approach it from the inside, you know, and then you get yeah, inside yeah. and you're like, Oh wow, this was all made up. <laughs> hey,
0: it's funny mind. that it's funny that none of the people who are uh, like at the head of like the carnivore community or anything like that are are nutrition PhDs. Oh no! Nice. It's, it's, it's usually and nothing against MDs, but it's usually an MD, right? Like it's never yeah, it's never a nutrition researcher, ever. Because it's never anyone who has any background in nutrition research, yeah.
1: like not Do even a know. master's
0: degree. I wish, is such a, a dumb statement, but I would say, I wish research was as sensationalist as people make it seem like, oh, there's just like these conspiracies and you like team up with these people, you get a ton of money and you just like make stuff up and it's all secretive and like, it's, like, it's, it's so actually dangerous. very boring. It's not that fun at all.
1: <laughs> so much more boring than the stories.
0: Um, yeah. Okay. So the last thing I want to talk about, because we've been on here for a while is, because oftentimes. You know, when we talk about like the carnivore diet not being optimal for health, people are just like, how can you say meat is bad? It's like, we're not saying meat is bad, right? You could actually eat a good amount of meat and probably be fairly healthy overall. I think some of the main negative effects we see are due to saturated fat intake um, mainly, right? I would additionally say that perhaps some of the cooking methods associated with meat consumption, like charring the hell out of your meat probably isn't the healthiest. I realistically don't know whether we know how large of an effect that actually has. But essentially when you char meats, you're creating these compounds that are carcinogenic, right? Now, like, again, what sort of effect does that have? We don't know, but we do know that it can be potentially harmful. And most people, if you're eating steak, you're the hell out of it because it tastes way better, right? Like if you have pork chops, you, you fry them up. Uh, you know, frying things at high temperatures is also not the best. So if you make some modifications to one, the type of meat that you consume, especially if you're somebody who is sensitive to saturated fat, increasing LDL, right? And we talked a little bit about this on the last episode that we did together. So if you simply just consume leaner sources of meat, and if perhaps you vary up your cooking methods so you're not always charring the hell out of your meat, it's probably all good. Well, you can also reduce production of those advanced glycation end
1: products and other compounds by marinating your meat. So if you marinate in a... in anything that has herbs, because of the antioxidant capacity of the herbs, it actually prevents the formation of some of those byproducts in like to a great degree, like eighty five, ninety percent reduction. What if so you're charring the hell out of the herbs too, though? Um, they they're the antioxidant. Like, I I don't know what, it, but I think it's like it's seep. Like, some of those nutrients are kind of seeping into the meat or whatever and protecting it. I don't know exactly. Well, I mean, the the studies, multiple studies, like. Covered this on a reel a couple, couple of months ago, um, but there's multiple studies that, that look at different marinades, and including alcohol was beneficial, but herbs was the thing that seemed to like herbs and lime juice and vinegar, like anything that had an antioxidant effect, like mm-hmm. had antioxidant properties, protected the meat from those, uh, from the generation okay. of those compounds. I'm only bringing this
0: up because I'm a cooking nerd. I love cooking. I wonder if they charred the meat to the same degree. now I don't mean using the same temperature for the same amount of time. And the reason I bring this up is because if you add moisture, yeah, it takes period.
1: To
0: yeah, exactly. And it typically, like when I make steak, I pat it dry so it chars well, right? And like, if you just put something in a marinade and put it on whatever sort of uh, cooking equipment you're using, it's not going to char the same way. So I wonder how much of an effect that has anyways. But regardless, just don't char the hell out of your
1: meat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, um, the other piece of that is iron consumption. So uh, if you're, in, and this also is largely genetic, but if you're consuming a lot of red meat, you can consume excess amounts of iron mm-hmm. and that can have negative effects on health as well.
0: Off the top of your head, would you know how much red meat consumption would be perhaps excessive in terms of iron?
1: Oh, it it would take like going carnivore. Like it would take going, yeah, okay. you know, in that direction because most people... Yeah. um. Well, I mean, so it, it also depends on your individual like absorption and retention of iron as well. Because yeah. just like with LDL cholesterol, there's massive differences in genetics, but um, it would, it, it's going to require like over a pound of meat per day. Well, depending on what else you're eating, but yeah, like it's going to be over a yeah. pound of meat per day to be getting in the very high ranges of iron consumption.
0: And it's going to be tough if you eat enough of those plant foods that uh, prevent iron absorption because they're anti-nutrients they suck it out of your body, <laughs> yeah. but I'll, I'll jokes aside, listen, you can include, you know, a fairly decent amount of meat in your diet. Be very healthy. Again, if you want to, um, perhaps limit some of the potential negative effects, consume leaner sources of meat, right? It seems like the, the major health, negative health effects are due to the saturated fat content. And again, that's also very individualized, um, Definitely don't char the hell out of your meat. Eat a varied source of meat, right? Like you don't have to just eat red meat, eat fish, eat chicken, eat poultry, like that is also meat. And then in addition, just eat a lot of plant-based foods. <laughs> it's that simple, right? Just eat minimally processed foods. I, it's funny because when I I made a list, I made an outline for this episode and I tried writing down the pros of the carnivore diet. And like the main thing I wrote was minimally processed diet. And that is probably... You know, one of the big benefits, because in general, like just eating a ton of processed foods isn't helpful. But if you're just eating minimally processed foods from animals, from plants, you're going to be good. And we can argue that that is probably the optimal human diet, not just from a longevity perspective, but perhaps from a quality of life perspective as well. Um, it's, it's tough because, you know, I see the argument from a longevity perspective slightly of people like just don't eat any saturated fats, so don't eat any animal based foods. It's like, okay, but then like, it's really hard to get protein and it's important to have muscle as you age as well. And there's a whole host of other things that you can get from animal-based foods. Like, could you live a little bit longer? I think that's a far maybe It makes sense. I don't Mm -hmm. think we have a ton of data on that either. Exactly. Like it's a maybe, and it's a strong, maybe to give up a whole food group that could have a ton of health benefits too, right? Like we know that muscle is very important as you age. (laughs)
1: Well yeah, the other side of it is what you mentioned like there there are nutrients that are found in animal foods that are difficult to get out of plant foods and if you are yeah. you're if you're completely avoiding animal foods it's going to be difficult to meet your
0: it's going to be more yeah.
1: difficult to meet your nutrient needs than on, on an omnivore diet. But on The other side of that um it's pretty easy like for example B12, zinc, iron, you know these nutrients that are um higher in in animal food Meat. you only need like two servings per day if that to to like fill out those needs like as you mentioned earlier meat can be pretty nutrient dense so you really only need maybe four eight ounces per day to get enough b12 to get enough zinc to, to supplement your diet and then beyond that you're getting additional amounts of those nutrients but you don't necessarily need them and so i think that's where i think that like you know meat is there to help meet your nutrient needs but then Probably fill out most of the rest of your diet with plants because there's a wider variety of nutrients available in plant And so we can eat a variety of different plant foods and get a variety of nutrients, whereas meat is pre- like pretty similar protein, zinc, you know, there's very similar nutrients in meat as opposed to plant foods that have a wide variety of potassium, mm-hmm. magnesium, folate, you know, different
0: kinds of meat. Yeah. Did you just brought up a great point? And I think we'll finish on this. And it's the fact that like you should eat more plant foods because there's a wider variety of plant foods versus just meat. Right. And yes, there's going to be a difference between like beef and salmon and pork perhaps, but in general, that's a great, that's a great point because we're also not arguing like just eat green leafy vegetables and like prod- like if we said, Have a diet that's predominantly just green leafy veggies and not other plant-based foods. That probably also wouldn't be good advice, right? Or like the best advice. So we're saying like, eat whole grains, eat legumes, eat green veggies, eat fruits. These are all vastly different. Eat nuts, eat seeds, right? Um, And that's why it's like, yeah, that should probably take a morbid diet because there's just like more variety there. And those things all have unique benefits. Um, So meat heals. Trump for twenty twenty four president. I feel like almost everyone who says those
1: exos meat heels also would probably support
0: update it. It's hilarious how nutrition is um politicized. politicized. What was it that i I made a video? It was either about artificial sweeteners or about soy. And somebody commented, I bet you got the Jad.
1: Oh, I've gotten that so many times. <laughs> Anytime it's so funny. Cause I talk about plant foods a bit more, you know, about, yeah. and so, you know, I get that quite a bit of like, I've, I've been called a liberal multiple times because of like, I think on one time I said like, cause raw milk was dangerous. People were like, it's like, what am I talking about, yeah. man? This is Dude,
0: the funny thing the The raw milk one is funny too. Cause they were saying I have raw milk and it hasn't done anything to me. It's like, yeah. Cause the actual risk is relatively low, but if something actually happens, like something pretty bad can happen. And you can just avoid it by, like, not having it, right? Uh, I would say I, it's funny, and this one is, I don't know if you know the answer to this, if the risk of consuming raw dairy is substantially higher than consuming raw fish. Do you know? Because uh, it's, it's funny how raw fish is kind of, like, accepted.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I'm guessing it's probably not that much higher, like, in terms of, I mean, the the, the risk the risk is small when it comes to raw dairy. The problem is like you said it's a major negative outcome and there's no yeah. reason to to do it like uh yeah. you're not getting any health benefit from consuming it raw
0: yeah um, That's, so. yeah and the foot uh, yeah it's i only brought up that question because i had a food safety course in graduate school and the professor was like he he was a big researcher on like allergens and uh, overall food safety and food processing for improving overall food safety and he just like was so against sushi. He just like, we should not eat raw fish. <laughs> he was like, I would never eat raw fish. And it's funny. He was Asian himself and he was just like totally against sushi. And I was like, hmm, maybe he's onto something, but it's too good. I'm not going to stop eating it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's probably risk. Like it's, it's probably gross. Yeah. I don't know the data though.
0: Yeah. Anyways, my man, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I'd love for you to share your socials, but I think everybody knows who you are. Yeah, I appreciate it. Guys, Adrian at Dr. Adrian Chavez and listen to his podcast, the Nutrition Science Podcast. Um, His is way more popular than mine because mine are nearly as well thought out as his are. I kind of just invite somebody on and we talk. But um, anyways, man, all jokes aside, thank you so much for being here and we'll stay in contact. We'll, We'll speak soon. See ya. Yeah, for sure. Appreciate it, man.